Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives where you can listen to every episode we've ever done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is October 3rd, 2013, and my guest is Cliff Winston of the Brookings Institution. Cliff, welcome back to EconTalk. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. We're going to talk today about an article you've written for the Journal of Economic Literature on the transportation system of the United States. It's a pretty – and we're going to put a link up to the paper itself in a video that Brookings has put together uh, summarizing some of the points. Transportation is a pretty big part of our economy, right? Yeah, a, a lot bigger than than people realize. If if you start, you know, you think about it, it should be a lot, but no one, you know, typically sort of thinks of the annual expenditures on transportation. But you know, when you sum these things up in terms of what consumers spend, in terms of getting to work, various pleasure trips, and sort of you know non-work trips, and then you look at what shippers spend on shipping freight, so on and so forth, and the government spends building infrastructure, you know, we're talking shares of GDP, you know, that approach the amount that we're spending on health care. But people obviously don't don't seem to pay as much attention to transportation as they do about health. And that's just out of pocket expenditures. It doesn't include the time expenditures, which it turns out are about as large as the, the monetary expenditures. So you look at a whole range of policy issues related to transportation, including some of the history. I want to start with the history. How has the role of government in the transportation sector evolved over the history of the United States? Because it would surprise me. I probably knew this, but I'd forgotten how recently some government involvement has has been, how recent some of it's been, or some of it goes back a long way. So give us a quick thumbnail sketch of of the sector and uh, government's role. Sure. I mean, actually, you know, the interesting thing about transportation is how, although, you know, certainly pervasive government involvement now, how virtually all components of transportation, whether they be the modes or the infrastructure, were initially started by the private sector, not the government. That is, the first roads in America actually were built by private toll or road companies. You know, the first airports in America were private uh, airport companies, even air traffic control, which you think has got to be a government function, was actually set up uh, by you know, a private uh, consortium, so to speak. So you know, basically, the system started out in its, in, its, in its infancy, if you will, with the private sector, and gradually government got involved in, in roads, for example, regulating the roads, and then we get a familiar story as any part of the system experienced financial distress, and that certainly was going to happen, then government tended to come in. So that was sort of its entree uh, into the road system, <clears throat> certainly by uh, the early 1900s. And then other things happened during the Depression uh, we had airports that that were private but had serious financial problems. Again, government came in and wound up taking them over, subsequently set up an air traffic control system. In the 50s, we largely had private, you know, by the, by the time it was the 50s, there were public uh, transit companies as the, ro- the auto came in and was competing with transit and causing it to have financial distress. And the then private companies collapsed. Again, there was regulatory issues that may have uh, contributed to this. And again, government took took over the mode. So you, you have sort of a familiar pattern that things started out private. There tended to be some sort of crisis. You know, people debate to this day whether the private entities could have pulled through with government assistance. In any case, that was not forthcoming government wound up getting involved in taking over the operations. Those things that didn't take over, mainly on the inner city side, railroads, airlines, trucks, it stepped in and regulated them. 
And then we saw the withdrawal of economic regulation in the late 70s as we generally started moving away from government intervention. Now, you don't talk about it. I don't think you do in the paper. But one area that government got involved in a, in an unusual way would be the taxi cab market. So in, in many cities, highly regulated, but it's still privately run and owned. It's fascinating to me that we're living in a time now where private competitors – are starting to uh, bite into that um, government-run cartel or whatever you want to call it. Sometimes it's, you know, it depends on the city, obviously, but companies like Uber and others are offering uh, private taxi cab, uh, I think. And correct me if I'm wrong. Okay, well, yeah, there's, there's, you know, some areas of transportation are known a lot more than others. Taxis, I briefly mentioned because there just isn't as much knowledge as we'd like because, you know, generally the stories vary from city to city. Some cities, taxi cabs are largely deregulated. Others, they're high, highly regulated. And the certainly hallmark of the highly regulated taxi uh, areas are, you know, no new people can get in. And then you hear these stories, for example, in New York that, you know, taxi cab medallions are worth millions of dollars. Now, Uber offers a technology that enables a user with an application to get access to some form of what we would call taxi service. There's nothing preventing somebody from getting a traditional taxi, but in terms of getting new entry, other forms of car service are also trying to be hooked up on Uber. And this is the thing that the incumbent taxis want to fight. They don't want this kind of competition. And, you know, we're seeing how this is playing out in certain cities with this kind of sort of entry experiment through a new technology. And we'll just see what it, what it does. Yeah, I th- sorry. I think the distinction, I, I didn't make it clear. Taxis are allowed to cruise the streets and look for customers. Car services, you have to call and make a reservation. And what Uber does essentially turns uh, – a car service into more of a cruising opportunity for to pick up uh, a random passenger. Yeah, right. a real-time type yeah. of service that, that's very time responsive, which obviously is something that you can do with Uber and at the same time you know, compensate for cases when it's really just difficult to, to get a taxi. And you let somebody know you, you, you want service and somebody watching uh, this kind of thing can provide it. So let's start, though, with, uh, with airports. Uh, airports are kind of mysterious, I think, to most of us. We don't spend a lot of time talking about it, and we don't really understand what's going on. It, airports typically now, I think almost all uh, major airports in major cities are, are run by the city or the counties that they're in. Uh, but that, you say, wasn't the case. What was – when did that change roughly, and um, what were the consequences of that? Well, roughly, it was, it was during the Depression. You know, the the airports were private uh, as you know, air air service began, and you know, during the tremendous drop in in air travel, which never was very big at that time, as, as it was just getting going, um, you know, airports had problems, and governments basically came in, and for the most part, you know, municipalities have taken them over, and. You know, they're the ones that are now providing the infrastructure. And to a certain extent, it appeared to be a successful way of doing things in the same way that public highways seemed to be a successful way of doing things because it really wasn't congested. The system wasn't really sort of falling apart from excessive use, so on and so forth. And so we thought, okay, this is a very reasonable way to do things. But as expenses have grown, have delays and congestion has gotten worse, and airports as well as highways are not terribly responsive in dealing with this, we're beginning to see lots of problems with public ownership. Well, one of the ones that fascinates me is is access to the gates. Uh, so talk about how you know you'd think well. You know, if I want to fly, if I want to start offer a flight between Washington D.C. and Chicago. I'll just uh, go fly my fl- plane if I'm an airline to one of those places and land my plane, pick up some people, 
and take them to the other city and it seems pretty straightforward. But the Gates problem is a very severe uh, constraint, correct? Correct. What, what One thing as part of the story is, yes, the airports were owned and operated by the municipalities, but for expansions of the airport, terminals and the like, runways and the like, they needed somebody to guarantee the investments that they were going to make. And that came from bond purchases or bond holdings by the airlines. So the airlines actually had a very, very important relationship to you know the public owners of the airports, and they were basically funding uh, you know a fair amount of the the capital improvements and, and enhancement, if you will. Okay, but in return, they had say on the types of investments that could be made, and effectively were able to block entry to people who weren't going to be able to get gates because the airports certainly weren't going to give them to people. And if you wanted gates, in some cases, you would have to have a whole new wing built. So with gates sort of locked up in certain places, that made it very difficult for new airlines to enter. And they weren't all being uh, used. Right, they weren't all being used. They were not. They were not all being used, and there were different classifications of gates. There were what we call exclusively used gates, where certain airlines just, you know, they had the right to use these things. And then there, there were things where you did have some flexibility, but oftentimes, you know, the new airline couldn't get the use of the gate at the preferred time, and and these kinds of things. So. You know, it has become a form of entry barrier. That is, yes, ideally you might want to serve an airport, but if the gate space isn't there for you and you're not going to shell out the money to go out and, and build additional terminal capacity, you can be out of luck. And, of course, restrictions on competition are reflected in higher prices, and that's what the evidence has indicated. How would that work in a private system, though? The private system, say a consortium of air, airlines that currently serve a city that, that own the airport, they're not going to like entry either. Well, they're going to have, obviously, a very different financial situation in that you know, they're not going to be beholden on any particular airlines as dating back from you know when the airports were built and regulation was set up, which, by the way, was rather a convenient situation in restricting entry because that was done under regulation. So the question about getting gate space never came up during regulation because most, well, virtually all airlines had trouble entering routes anyway. It was only deregulation where these problems started to, to arise. But in any case, private airports where in many cities throughout this country, Competition seems quite feasible. Right here, obviously, National Reagan, BWI could compete. You know, the owner is presumably going to try to get entrants who are be willing to pay the cost of using the services. They're not going to sort of immediately say, you know, you're out of luck, you can't come in. You know, they're going to try to work with the airlines and find ways that they're willing to pay to cover their costs. They'll accommodate them. And if demand is growing, they'll say, okay, you know, we're going to build new terminals and handle more traffic, and we're expecting you to pay for it. But, you know, we're not going to call on other airlines uh, to bankroll these investments. We'll do it because we're going to be able to recover the cost by charging you. I so there's obviously going to be a lot more interaction between both the airports and the users of the airport, which is sort of one of the problems we have now. You have customers that use airports, but their relationship to landlords, so to speak, is virtually non-existent. I'm just trying to think and imagine what the owner of a private airport, what kind of entity it might be. So, for example, if I wanted to acquire, uh, thinking back to a city I lived in that had a little more vacant land there at St. Louis, if I wanted to acquire a large plot of land near the city of St. Louis, maybe in Illinois across the river, and build a private airport, that that's a and just offer the opportunity for airplanes to fly there. 
that can't happen right now, correct? And and so as a result, if I'm Southwest, which wanted to go into St. Louis, it had to go to the St. Louis airport and build its own terminal, which is nuts. <laughs> uh, and unless, you know, unless the other part of the airport was totally full, and I suspect it wasn't. Uh, so what the what is strange about the current world <clears throat> is how difficult entry is and and who controls it, right? Right. The difficulty is, is how entry is. And, and again, let me be clear. You know, we really do not need many, if any, new airports really being built. In other words, when I envision privatization, it's all the existing airports will be sold off. Which I might add, you know, will do quite a bit to help a lot of cities' financial situations. You know, they're going to sell off these assets, and and uh, infrastructure firms are going to buy them. So, you know, uh, for budgetary purposes, that could be helpful. You know, assuming a way what's done with the money. Yeah, who? But in any case, good point. But who? who Most of these things will be sold off, and it'll be the existing airports. But then there's also something else that's even part of this is. There are thousands of smaller airports that could be used, you know, for commercial service, but they're not being used now. Why not? Well, basically, these are not airports that are going to get public money. So, to the extent they want to compete, they're going to be at a disadvantage. And they—they're not. There's no mechanism for them to use private money right now. Not not right now. Not for that purpose. So let's let's. So it could be look very, very different than what we've got now. Yeah, let's think creatively for a minute. So if every city in America, either out of financial desperation or, or economic wisdom, decided to auction off its airports to the highest bidder, uh, how would you imagine that situation settling down after a couple years? Would Would there be sufficient competition among airports – to prevent them from extracting uh, large sums of money out of customers and airlines to have access to them? Do you imagine, well, would, first, you, would you let them freely buy the airport, do whatever they want with it? Well, okay, first of all, I would, would allow for one requirement, and we've actually learned this from an experience in London, which, by the way, has privatized its airport. So, you know, we're, we're, we're behind the uh, curve here. Uh, interestingly, you know, the leader of, of, of capitalism in the free world tends to be really slow on the uptake in terms of privatization. Many places have actually been exploring privatization of the airports. But in any case, yeah, London made the mistake and initially sold off their airports to one infrastructure company, a foreign one, and subsequently realized that was not the right way to do it and forced that company to effectively sell two of the airports. What so should they have if done? We're going to do this, they should have sold them to independent buyers. So that's what we're, that's what the approach that we should take in the U.S. At least initially, say yes, we're going to sell off airports, but we're not going to have the same company, you know, buy all three of them, uh, at least you know in this area, and, and and give them an outright monopoly to start. You know, we we would like independent firms to purchase these things, and so then they will go head to head. Yeah. And, you know, like, like any fundamental institutional change, uh, like deregulation, you know, there's obviously going to be enormous learning. And, you know, I can envision on, on the one hand, we will reveal inefficiencies that we had no idea existed, um, in terms of operations that could be vastly improved. In terms of interactions between airlines and airports where airlines say, look, you know, we can provide better service if you let us do this and get rid of crazy things like tarmac rules. You know, at the same time, there'll be shocks, uh, as there have been following deregulations and, you know, undoubtedly financial crises where it'd be difficult for certain airports that may have much less traffic. So, you know, I, I don't want to oversell how smooth a ride privatization will be if people thought deregulation was tough, privatization is going to be even worse because now we're going to have people that had no experience, have had no experience really operating in the private sector. But I think when all is said and done, it'll be clear this is a much more efficient way to do things that airports who are already competing already, let's not kid, our, kid ourselves. You know, 
public sector airports do try to get passengers and do implicitly compete with each other. We're just going to make this explicit. And I think the results could be quite positive. Yeah, they, they do a little innovation. Uh, here in the D.C. area, there there are parking garages that tell you how many spaces are available on each floor and which rows even have available spaces. I find that a very pleasant improvement in uh, parking life. But <clears throat> they're not so good at minimizing the distance from where you park your car to where you get on the plane. Uh, Dallas in particular being, I find, frustrating. It used to be you had to ride the special bus. Now you've just got to ride a special in internal uh, metro system that it seems to be designed to make you go up and down a lot of escalators as much as possible. Um, so it would be interesting to see oh, how much more pleasant that would be if somebody was actually trying to make more money off it. Yeah, absolutely. And and again, you know, start exploring ways in which you know passengers uh, who are unhappy could be more happy. You know, what is it that you want at your airport? Right now, you know, these guys, the, the public airports just don't have that big an incentive since, you know, they're getting their funds and are protected from competition. At the same time, as we're now seeing in a lot of public transportation services, as well as other services, they're starting to run deficits. And that's raising problems with trying to improve services and even maintain current operations. Let's talk about the commuting, some commuting issues uh, I was interested to see in your paper that despite the passion for uh, public transportation that has engulfed many American cities, the excitement of light rail and this remaining bus systems that are still in place, commuting by car remains um, not only the dominant form of, of commuting, but uh, it's grown steadily over the last uh, 40 years. One, why do you think that's happened? And two, what do you think of the uh, demand, the claims that we need more public transportation, reduce dependence on the car? Well, you know, people always look to Europe, high-density areas, and say how great their transit systems are. And, you know, what, what they fail to realize is the dynamic of the urban and suburban area. You know, a lot, a lot of these older communities, people have been there for many hundreds of years and the density is, is established, you know, America is still a place on the move. And, you know, when, when I came to DC and I've no doubt you were, you know, there wasn't the expansion of Tyson's corner and, and, and out to suburban Virginia and Maryland and so on and so forth. And now there's been just over the past 10, 20 years, there's just a huge change in this area. Well, if you have a Metro system, that, you know, stops at Vienna and is not going to be able to cater to those people, they're not going to ride it. And what are they going to do? They're going to use cars. Well, you multiply that by, you know, many experiences throughout the country, and you're talking about the inability of transit to keep up with fundamental changes in demographics, uh, in, in our sort of dynamic Metro areas. So that's a, a big problem, physical problem with urban rail. You know, bus, you'd think, well, they're like car. They ought to be more flexible. Yes. And they run into one big problem. Regulations. Trying to establish a new bus route or, you know, changing an existing one can be quite difficult, time consuming, the usual kinds of, kinds of, uh, you know, regulatory problems. And bus just isn't, you know, all that good at responding quickly. And again, what's the incentive? They're still getting their subsidies. So I think, you know, what, what you have with transit, and I've been hinting at this all along, is again, no real fundamental connection between the suppliers of the service and the customers. Trying to respond to the changes in the customer's needs and preferences trying to respond to just exogenous changes in society, what have you. You have a system that's in place. It gets its subsidies. Things are good. Why change? And the public, who doesn't really know how things could be so much better, seems to go along with it and then also shares what I would call this engineering mentality. What I mean by engineering mentality, that all the solutions to transportation are thought of in terms of more spending, you know, 
if we could just put more money into rail and expand its network, you know, if we could just put more money into a new rail system where we don't have any, you know, all this would solve our problems, but it wouldn't because it's not dealing with the fundamental problem of being able to respond effectively to consumer preferences. These are very expensive solutions. And of course, they're not dealing again with the fundamental problems with autos about mispricing congestion and the like. So the real tragedy in transportation is it seems to be more dominated by engineering than economics, where in fact, so many of of the solutions really involve just basic improvements in pricing and investment. So uh, do you think we spend enough on infrastructure? We've had an interesting uh, an interesting debate with Robert Frank on this topic, centering around this uh, claim you often hear that we uh, we don't spend nearly enough. Our infrastructure is crumbling. It's dangerous. How would you um, respond to that argument, given your uh, the point you just made? Okay, so, you know, this is just a, a basic economic point that, that's obviously very simple for economists, but, but uh, non-economists o- often don't recognize this. Before you make an investment decision, one, whether you should do it or not, or make it an overall assessment, are we doing enough of it or, or too little of it, you got to first ask the question, is the facility properly priced? I mean, just, just think of any, forget about transportation, just think of any commodity. If talking about oranges and if oranges were priced at, oh, a nickel and we're constantly running out of oranges, then the instinct of most people is, well, we need to increase production of oranges and build more orange factories or groves or what have you, right? When in fact, someone else might say who's an economist, hopefully, Wait a minute. You know, oranges are greatly underpriced. You know, underpriced. Going by underpriced. A, when you say they're nickel, you mean legally there's some constraint on them that someone has set the price of yeah, the nickel in this case, yeah, the, 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 yeah, there was an artificially low price. Yeah, this is not a market market price. And say, look, you know, let's 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 get market pricing here, and prices go up, and all of a sudden we realize, you know, supply is equal to demand, and the market is clearing, and we really don't need to make any investments in, in production of oranges, right? Well, that's the same idea with roads. You know, roads have an artificially low price. Cars are not charged for congestion, so they put pressure on peak capacity. Trucks are not charged efficiently for the damage they do to roads. Pay a gas tax when they really need to pay an ex- charge that reflects the damage they do to roads. You know, this underpricing causes roads capacity to fill up, causes the roads to wear out a lot sooner, and it generates the demands for we need more spending and our infrastructure is underfunded. I say, let's get the prices right. Now, same thing is true for airports, same kind of thing, even ports, same thing. You know, my guess would be after getting the efficient prices, yeah, there probably is room for some efficient, and I mean efficient, that would satisfy cost-benefit criteria, investments in highways, in some high-density areas, certainly additional runways in high-density airports, but not the trillions of dollars that people talk about and not nearly as much as people are led to believe. So, you know, I think that the claims of the infrastructure crisis are grossly overstated and what we really have is a pricing crisis. And if we can get the prices right, that could do an awful lot to improve the condition and service on our infrastructure. Yeah, I want to come back to that in a second, but I want to make a, let's talk, make a general observation first, which is, what you've said now is that not only is transportation about the size of the healthcare industry, it's kind of structured the same way, where the customer <laughs> doesn't uh, do the real paying and the supplier doesn't really receive the money from the customer and that messes up the incentives. 
know, one view would be that it works surprisingly well, given how badly designed it is. You know, I get on my airplane, they're, they're incredibly safe. I don't think that's due to government regulation, but they are incredibly safe. Similarly, I get in my cars, they're incredibly safe. All these methods, by the way, are much safer than they were, <clears throat> and they're safer long before government regulation got involved on safety. So it, the trends are basically unchanged over very long periods of time, and it's mainly, I think, driven by our increasing wealth and desire for safety. But the, my point is that, yeah, it works pretty well. I, I agree the urban congestion thing, not so well. But you could – the rest of it, you know, th I think we build too many roads. We repair them too often. I assume that's because of the political power of contractors, um, right? That creates lots of delays and wastes money and and it sucks money out of my pocket into their pocket more than is probably necessary. But you could argue it works pretty well. You know, the, the, the parallel to healthcare is a nice one because, you know, I think most Americans think yeah, healthcare it works pretty well. And when you think about it, well, there's a reason for it. We, we spend, spend an too much. awful lot of money. Yeah. It should work well, yeah. given yeah. how much money we spend on it. That's correct. But what also is interesting is people really have no idea. Like, they think, most people will think that transit covers its cost. Just without even cost being defined, you know, transit breaks even. Right, I go you know, to the my, metro. I get on the metro. The metro is full. I pay money. You know, all these people are on it. Yeah, I'm in New York. I do the subway. There are tons of people on it. You know, no one is going to realize that they don't co that these transit systems cover none of their capital costs, and generally a modest fraction at best of their operating costs, and the rest of this is coming from the public. Uh, highways. You know, it used to be that the systems were designed to break even and that we're paying out of a trust fund from the gas tax. So that's the way people pay. And, you know, they just pay gasoline. They don't realize that a chunk of this is going to the roads. But now we're running a deficit there. And in a sense, it's been a deficit building for a long while because there's deferred maintenance. So, you know, what we have is we really have a multi-trillion dollar system in terms of the value of the assets. If you actually look at the value of highways, airports, our rail stock, ports, so on and forth, these are in the trillions of dollars. We've just built this enormous system. So yes, it should be pretty good given the money we've spent on it in this country. At the same time, I think the tragedy is, is the counterfactual. People just don't realize how much waste there is. Compared to what? compared to that we could have a more efficient system. And I'm not even getting into yet the technology so that forget about also the waste that things could be just infinitely more efficient. Let me just give you one simple thing that, you know, I think anybody can, can relate to. You know, you're driving home late at night, 12, 1 in the morning, and, you know, you, you hit a cross street and it's got a light and it's red. <laughs> And you're waiting, and Strange, you're waiting, yeah. and someone's on, you know, someone, and it's green on the in the other direction, and no one's coming. And you're, and you're obviously, you know, people are often tempted just to run the thing. Well, they used but to run. They this? used to run it, Cliff, until they uh, they took the the cameras are now ruined that that right. common sense strategy. Right, but how about about this, which technology could do? Look, you have stoplights, especially in in in, in these off peak times, that are time to traffic flows. And if no one's there, boom, you know, it's automatically green or immediately switches to blinking red. So you don't have to wait. You know, this is just a simple thing, but it's just an example, again, of just in terms of operations and improving technology, how it could be done. So I think, you know, the bottom line is, you know, we have this enormously expensive and valuable transportation system that's the envy of the world. There's no question. It, it, it's better than other countries' systems when you look at the, the thing in toto. But there's an enormous amount of waste, enormous amount of inefficiencies in terms of operations. And for what we spend, we could have something that's even better and in ways that, that people find hard to imagine. Well, I think a lot of people would disagree with your claim that it's um, it's the envy of the world, Right. Mostly would say well, no, I'm talking about the whole system. Yeah, so but, the, you know, well, Europe has better trains. Their their airports are nicer. 
their roads, the Autobahn, they're in better shape. I mean, generally, people, I don't think there's a lot of, I, I agree with you. I think our system works pretty well. Um, I could love your point that, yeah, at what price? But I don't know if we're doing so well relative to everybody else. Our rail freight system is the envy of the world. We have a really excellent rail freight system. Uh, other other countries go in passenger system, and if you think our system is subsidized, wait till you look at what theirs is, right? Extremely, extremely inefficient and very expensive. Our road systems tend to be better. Um, again, other people will have urban rail systems and so on and so forth, but those two, even with the density, tend to be very highly subsidized. Uh, our air service tends to be much better, uh, far more competitive. I mean, look how long it was before you get affordable air travel in Europe. So I'm just saying, you know, across the board, you know, I think our over, overall, our systems is, is better. So uh, let me ask you a question. Other systems better. So let me ask you a question about yeah. the efficiency issue. Uh, I agree with you that, you know, roads are underpriced. They're, they're zero, the money price. So time comes in as a way to ration the limited space in most urban areas. And when we expand the roads, it just takes a while for them to fill up again because people move closer to the city until they find their commute unpleasant and they move back, you know, they move closer back out depending on the, as the people adjust. So, but the question is, if if you improve the efficiency of this system, and you could say this about a lot of different parts of the transportation system, the question is, who's going to capture those gains? If you put a tax on commuting, uh, you're going to make drivers worse off. It's true they're going to save time. But to get them to save enough time, you can't save them enough time to make up for the money because then the tax is too low. You've got it by definition, discourage people from driving on the roads. So those gains aren't going to go to drivers. So the political mechanisms for these kind of changes to me seem very low. Having said that, here in DC and elsewhere, we're trying, we're trying toll roads for the you know first time and I assume – I don't know the politics of it. I assume it has partly to do with the fact that they just like the money. I don't think it's just – and maybe it's from the demand from some people who want to be able to uh, get to work quicker and not spend so much time in their car. But how do you respond to that challenge on efficiency? Okay. So you know, the traditional argument against a lot of the calls for efficiency improvements has been that, yes – you know, these things would improve efficiency, but the, the distributional effects, and in particular, you know, money going from consumers to the government is what's driving the benefit. Yeah. That, I would say, is the conventional view, and I think this is, this is the, the beauty of economic research and, and, and greater understanding of technology. It's pretty much out of date. First of all, you know, the major improvement that we made in microeconomics research is dealing with heterogeneity. And what that basically means is that people are different. So whereas before the conventional thinking was about the average user and so on and so forth, now we can analyze in more detail, you know, specific users who have different values of time, so on and so forth, and also users whose value of time may differ on different days. Sure. So, you know, it may be the case that on any given day, someone says, look, I really got to get to work and I'm willing to pay more to do it, a lot more, and I want the option to do it. And I'm better off by doing this. Okay, whereas other people would not feel that way, All right? So it's this heterogeneity and now the ability through technology to actually charge differentiated prices that has opened people's eyes up to say, wait a minute, you know, there can be sort of a better matching here where, yes, the prices are pretty high, but, you know, people really have high values of time, and it's not just rich people. So, you know, this kind of pricing thing, this could be a good thing, you know, leaving those people who self-select to pay a lot because they really value it better off, and those who don't want to do it don't have to, and, and they, they obviously, you know, pay much less and get worse travel time. But it doesn't even end there. Now we're starting to realize, look, once we start introducing these kind of, you know, fundamental changes in pricing and we then realize, God, you know, transportation interacts with an awful lot of economic activities. So by 
putting in the pricing that we talked about, we realized, huh, you know, there may all then also then be, at least in the longer run, changes in land use. You know, greater uh, density. And, absolutely. And so instead of having people spread out, things are closer. Well, that means government services are going to be less costly. You don't have to string wires from, you know, miles apart or whatever to provide some sort of public services. And now even, you know, again, modern research is talking about the benefits of economies of agglomeration. Easier for people to meet, get around, so on and so forth. Less carbon. Um, less carbon. Environmental effects. Yeah. Now, here's something else, you know. People are realizing, look, you know, I'm traveling during these congested conditions and I'm going out there and it's almost sort of a, a race to the top. I need a bigger car. I'm just around other cars and I don't like it. I'm uncomfortable in this kind of traffic and I want to be able to accelerate. And so I'm going to, you know, I'm going to drive a large car. And indeed, we have found just as a stylized fact, that virtually all of the improvements in engine technology since the 80s have been reflected in horsepower, virtually none in fuel economy. Well, what might be at work during the 80s? Well, since the 80s, well, one thing is congestion that just, you know, continue to go up and up and up. So it may very well be that a big part of our energy consumption is simply related to congestion. And if we smoothed out traffic flow and gave people less incentives to go out and try to buy big cars to feel more comfortable in, in traffic, you wouldn't have these what we call peer effects. That could be another benefit of congestion pricing that falls on users. That's so I think between heterogeneity, is the buzzword, people are different, and then thinking more broadly about how transportation interacts with so many other economic activities, slowly we're trying to build the case to say, wait a minute, this is not just simply a transfer of revenue from consumers to the government. This is something that could lead to fundamental changes that do benefit consumers. Those are all excellent points, <clears throat> although I have to say that as someone who's recently spent a great deal of time commuting in the D.C. area, uh, sometimes there were a lot of times I wanted a smaller car because traffic's moving so slowly. I felt perfect would feel perfectly safe in a very small car. But uh, I want to ask you a different question. We recently, I recently had Tyler Cowan on Econ Talk, and he we're talking about technology and how it might change our lives, smart machines, etc. And he mentioned the driverless car. I'm curious what you think is going to be the barrier to. Obviously, there's legal issues. There's going to be issues of insurance that are going to make it interesting. But is it imaginable? So when I think about a driverless car, it, it, it opens up the possibility of going 80 or 90 miles an hour, basically being in a high, the equivalent of a high-speed train that would not crash into other cars because everybody's be going 80 to 90 and you wouldn't have the issues of bumper tailgating, slowdown, et cetera, that, or which are the major cause of traffic. And as a result, you'd be on a a high-speed, the equivalent of a high-speed train, except when you get off, you'd still have your car if you wanted to go somewhere that wasn't connected. So to me, the potential is very high. Are we, do you think we're going to allow them on regular roads, or could we imagine a world where roads are going to be created that will just have driverless cars and, and no other cars? My, my view, and I think transportation illustrates this, is that there's always this sort of battle between the private and public sector to innovate and introduce technological change. I've already mentioned just one example about stoplights that, you know, people know if, if, if the roads were private, I assure you, you know, private owners of roads would have traffic lights that respond in real time to traffic flows. And I think what, what, what we often have is the private sector trying to find ways to innovate you know, despite constraints of the public sector. And we learned this again in deregulation. You know, before we had deregulation, we had private entrepreneurs trying to show, yes, we could get competition in airlines. Um, you know, we certainly could find ways that, that we can compete between rail and truck, that kind of thing, okay? Well, I think this is a textbook case that here we have a highway system that basically hasn't changed since we started building roads in this country. You know, no sort of major innovations in improving performance. Easy pass. Um, that's, that's our closest. That's our biggest. 
That's our biggest innovation. Easy pass. I don't have which, to slow which, down. Which, which a reached around here came from a private innovator, probably the, you know, the original owner of uh, the Greenway uh, Road, I think, was the one who put that in. Um, so, you know, I, I seriously doubt that, that it was anybody in the public sector that was the first to do this. My point being, the driverless car is effectively going to be a leapfrog technology to get over the fact that roads have not seen any innovation, where there could have been countless areas where we could have innovated, from the mundane to improvements in um, you know, asphalt design and resurfacing, lane width you know, that's adjusted in real time to traffic flows, even you know, realizing that, look, cars don't break down anymore. Why are we wasting a lane on a breakdown lane? You know, all sorts of things that, that could have been changed, and even ones that are more technologically sophisticated than that. So the driverless car is coming, and it's, again, a way that the private sector, in this case, the automobile companies, have been trying to, in a sense, compensate for inefficiencies in the road system. So technologically, we're going to have it, and I think as people get new cars, they'll realize, wait, the technology that I see in my new car that I can see in this uh, you know, screen on your dashboard, what's behind me, that's the same kind of thing that they're using in a driverless car. There's just cameras everywhere, and cars will be able to effectively communicate with each other. So it's an exciting development, and in principle could obviously improve traffic flows. Driverless cars do not rubberneck when they're accidents, so you're not going to have that problem, and, and countless other things. But you're right. The problem is the driverless cars are going to have to operate on the public infrastructure. Well, what, what, what's one obvious problem? Potholes. You know, if the roads are not properly maintained, you know, your nice driverless car is going to start slowing up and probably going to even be sensitive to, to, to the roads yeah, beneath they'll figure, it. They'll figure that out. Okay. But, but you know, it's going to be a problem in the sense that you're going to start getting stop-and-go traffic. Um, again, signaling. You know, if you have signaling signals that are not really responding to real-time traffic flows, but just, you know, continue to go on this, here's red, here's green, so on and so forth, again, that's going to sort of undercut what the driverless cars are trying to do. So I think the bottom line is, is yes, we're going to be able to get driverless cars. I think it's unfortunate, though, that we'll probably have to get them still on public roads. It's, it's again, it's, it's sort of the same problem that airlines have or airplanes have operating on the publicly managed air traffic control system. You know, that's something that's the least more visible. People know or at least have heard that we're trying to build a new air traffic control system based on satellite technology instead of radar. But I think they've also heard the horror stories. Wait, this thing is years you know, behind in, in being implemented, it's you know having cost overruns, and you know who knows when we're going to get this. You know, it's the same kind of thing. You have the the private mode that's trying to operate on this public facility, and you have people in the public sector that basically have to manage new technology, and they're not up to doing it. You, you note in your paper that. Airplane travel has been – the delays in, in travel have gotten longer. I was struck by two things when I when I saw that. One is how small the increase has been. It has gotten longer, the, the ground time versus flying time. The ground time is longer, but it hasn't gotten a lot longer. Having said that, it seems to me that uh, there's a lot more caution about traveling in bad weather, and there's a lot of lengthy delays, not just turnaround being slower, but – the canceling and delaying of flights. Am I wrong on those two points? Um, well, in terms of technology, we've, we've, you know, we've got better in some ways in that you know, uh, planes can certainly sort of see around wind shear. You know, when they see, but you know, they're navigated well around wind shear. Remember, this is all consistent to, with our safety data, right, where it is now so, so rare, fortunately, you know, that uh, – we don't experience airplane crashes anymore. So I think you know, we're, we're certainly doing better there. But I think, again, that's a lot of learning uh, on, on the part of pilots, better training, and improvements in, in uses of, of technology. So I don't, I don't think that's our problem. You know, our problem is just, just there's a lot of planes in the sky. 
and interacting with weather, you're going to continue to have congestion uh, until you can change technology, which is what the satellite-based system is going to do. In the same way that driverless cars effectively will increase more capacity, your cars can be closer together, the new satellite-based system will increase capacity. Planes can be closer together, and that's really going to be a, a major solution to delays. Uh, I want to get into some big picture questions in a minute. Before I do, though, talk about what's going on in the parking world. I was uh, surprised to see there's been some innovation, at least in some cities. I've never experienced it personally, but that uh, that the amount of time that people spend searching for parking is a part, a big part of urban congestion. You you note in the paper. Uh, what's one of the technological things that's changing there? Well, again, you, know, you, you touched on this. You know, you go to an airport, you have a sense about where a parking space is. Again, you know, we have technology that can enable us to do that. You, know, you can embed sensors in parking spaces and, and, and have applications to say, hey, this one's available. And you can even then set real-time prices. And you know, people are, various cities are exploring that, those kinds of innovations. Again, this is a, an example of trying to use improvements in information technology, interact them with transportation facilities, and make much more efficient use of the available capacity. And that could easily be done in parking, as I said, in terms of reducing search so that people could know in real time what spaces are available, obviously be more efficient to, to price the ones that are in the more congested areas or being used in more congested times. But again, in the public sector, these things are difficult. And, you know, when I kept on saying, when I've been saying, you know, we have no idea how much better the system could be, these are examples. The system could be so much better, not so much because, well, we could be building, you know, more roads or investing in more highways. It's because we can in be introducing technological innovations and advances advances much quicker than we've been doing so before. And again, if I can you know, point to a parallel with deregulation, that was one of the lessons that we learned from deregulation is how much innovation and technological advance had been held back because of regulation. What are some examples of that? So we're, you're talking about the late 70s when trucking and um – in air travel, was, railroads. railroads and trucking were all de relatively deregulated, or at least regulated less. What were some of the innovations that, that happened in that in the subsequent period that, that might not have happened otherwise? Well, people simply don't realize that you know, using information technology is vastly improved railroads. If, if you wanted to know where a freight shipment was during the regulated period, you'd call them up and they'd say, well, we have to check our, our camera. And you say, what? What would happen is railroads would bring their cars into a yard and then there'd be a camera taking pictures of the cars that came in. And they would look at those and say, well, there we go. That's, that's, that's where your shipment is or that's when we know where it is. Now we have real-time identification and people know exactly where their shipment is. And people say, well, we could have done that during regulation, sure. But what was the incentive? You know, where were innovations going to be generating more profit for these companies? They still face regulations and constraints. So what regulation did is just open up the incentive and in some cases opportunities like airlines could, could then dramatically change both their networks and their pricing algorithms and again introduce new technology to do yield management. So you know, these were sort of basic things, but they did greatly improve the provision and operations of inner city transportation. The potential in so much of the infrastructure to do these things and apply innovations and technology is even greater. And that's why you know, my belief is the payoff will be even bigger. So... Let's have a um, thought experiment here. I want to make Cliff Winston the transportation czar, but he's still Cliff Winston. He's not going to be subject to the whatever awful in political incentives the current transportation czars are under, um, under. What do you think are the two or three biggest things we, we could – or that would have the biggest impact? What are the two or three policy changes? Uh, I have a feeling I think I know one of them already, but – 
what are the two or three you would list that, that are the biggest mistakes we're making that we could do better if we had more economic wisdom and less political um, oversight? Well, I think there, there's one general mistake, and that's just the notion of experimentation. You know, what, what we learned that worked in regulatory reform were experiments. In other words, the fact that we were able to point to California and Texas as having you know, lower airline fares for flights of comparable distance on interstate routes, you know, open policymakers' eyes. And I think that's the kind of thing that the Department of Transportation under Secretary Mary Peters and Assistant Secretary Tyler Duvall were trying to do, have experiments. And so my general thing would be, look, let's just start trying experiments and ways to get things to be more efficient. People know what these things are. I mean, most of what I'm saying for anybody who's in the public or even the private sector is no surprise. They know about these things. The, The question is finding places where you can conduct experiments. So to try to put in, you know, road pricing based on real time traffic flows, you know, allowing competition with no constraints from, you know, other kinds of transit companies, not just the traditional bus and rail, you know, these kinds of things. And let private entrepreneurs think of these things. They're going to do better job than I can. That's the kind of thing, again, we've learned from deregulation is people are actually in this line of work are going to come up with, with important ideas and innovative ideas. So I would say that's sort of the general mindset I'm trying to trying to push for is experiments that start showing the public, look, this can be much better. And the advantage of America is we got a lot of cities and a lot of states and we can start trying to do these kinds of things. That was really direction, as I said, that the previous uh, DOT people wanted to go. And unfortunately, you know, they were they were constrained in doing so. In terms of technology, let's close with this. Uh, We've talked about the driverless car. Uh, Elon Musk has proposed the Hyperloop, which is this wild concept of, I don't know, how how would you describe it? A a slingshot of, I can't describe it. Yeah, the the time tunnel. (laughs) We'll put a link up to it. You got to see it to to really understand it. Are any of these, which of these things or others that I haven't mentioned, which of these might be really about to happen and, and could really change? You know, we have other proposals, high-speed rail, which I think people yeah. are starting to realize not really the best idea, way too expensive, unlikely to be uh, a useful use of public funds. Uh, what tra- what Close with what technologies might transform the transportation sector. Yeah, driverless car, absolutely. You know, that, that will have a huge impact both in reducing delays and improving safety. Uh, in this country, and also then give people a sense that, look, transportation is related to so many other activities and free up people to do other things. Um, and I think also the satellite-based uh, air traffic control system will also be excellent. It'll make safety that much better for air transportation. It'll improve routings. It'll improve speed. It'll reduce delays. It'll effectively expand the sky in congested areas and and help there. But you know beyond that, you know there's still other things that that we just don't know. Um you know transportation used to be the place that was the source of all the major innovations or among the major innovations of mankind. You know the jet plane, the car, so on and so forth. It's been a long time, you know many decades now since we've had these kinds of things. Uh, I think part of the problem really is the government's pervasive role and the public sector provision and management and operation. Uh, I would like to see you know, much more involvement of the private sector. And I think despite the constraints of the public sector, the private sector is still trying to do things, e.g. The, the driverless car. Uh, private sector could certainly get involved in provision of air traffic control systems that are private. It's going on in other parts of the world. That's another thing that most Americans don't realize is that there are other places where private private people are much more involved. So I think that's the kind of thing that we want to look for is, is you know, major innovations of the sort that we have, but just also a greater realization about how transportation intersects with so many other areas of our life that is just so important 
to greatly improve this system and make it as innovative as possible. My guest today has been Cliff Winston of the Brookings Institution. Cliff, thanks for being part of EconTalk. Thank you. Good to talk with you. This is EconTalk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more EconTalk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for EconTalk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.